morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Can you hear me now? Test, test, test. I'm on. Test, test. Test. Now I'm on. Well, thank you for your prayers for our, our family. We're doing well. Um, God is good. Amen? Amen? So you may remember that in February, I started a series called On Being Christians at Home. And last time, I talked about the role of fathers. Um, but today, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to be a biblical wife. And um, I want to take your attention to Colossians 3, Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21. This series is based on these verses, which in my Bible is titled by the translators, Holiness in Family Life. And so it starts out in verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. So last time we focused on the role of biblical fatherhood, and uh, today I want to talk about um, the role of being a biblical wife. I keep hearing in my head the term biblical wifery or wifery, biblical wifery. I don't think that's codified in the canon. But um, it's, a, it's, interesting, it's an interesting topic for a man to uh, research. Uh, I was in Starbucks researching this topic, and someone came up to me and said, oh, what are you reading? And I looked at the title of the book, and I said, well, it's called The Joy of Being a Woman. <laughs> it was a good conversation starter. But, um, so I want to be very clear that these messages are not about condemnation, but hopefully inspiration. Um, we want to, the motive for these messages is that we would adorn the doctrine of, of God, adorn the doctrine of God as best we can. Now, I realize that some of you are men, some of you are unmarried men, some of you are unmarried women, some of you are divorced, some of you have lost your precious spouses recently. But I do believe that because this is the word of God, there's going to be something here for everyone. So let's believe that together. Um, we love to laugh about the strange dynamics that exist between husbands and wives, don't we? Um, recently, Laura and I took our oldest daughters, three children, uh, from Colorado Springs to Santa Fe for a few days just to have fun. And uh, Marin, the oldest, is, I think she's 13, uh, but 
we're all certain of this, that she came out of the womb uh, destined to be an attorney. She loves to argue, and, and she's very bright and um, precocious. And uh, because she's 13, I knew she would be interested in sort of marriage kind of things. And we were playing all kinds of road games. And uh, so I asked the question, um, if you asked a 1,000 women what they want in a future husband, what would be the most common answer that you would hear? Uh, I've been doing some studying along these lines. And one of the most common things, I don't know if it's the most common thing, but one of the most common things you hear is uh, the woman will say, I want him to have a good sense of humor. And um, so I was wondering if Marin or Raina or Kemper would come out with that. But Marin, being the um, very assertive, uh, outspoken individual she is, said, uh, well, I know the answer to that. The answer is, I want him to do what I tell him to do. <laughs> and oh my gosh, we cracked up. And then. Um, so she said, no, I don't really mean that. And then paused for a minute and said, yeah, I really do mean that. <laughs> um, what did I do with that clicker? Here it is. So uh, the next humorous thing I'm going to show you is uh, Laura and I have had a competition for years about who's more right. And uh, unfortunately, we ran into this sign in Missouri on this exact spot in the afternoon of December 13th, 1964, a marital argument was won by the husband. That's, Bill, Bill says that's the last time it happened. And then I took the time a couple of years ago to, to find funny marriage quotes and my favorite is by a comedian named Rita Radner, and she says, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you get to annoy the rest of your life. <laughs> but uh, before we look at the main areas of focus in the scriptures directed at the role of being a biblical wife, I want to offer some beginning exhortations for wives. The first one is this. You have incredible power in your role as a wife. I suspect that you often may feel that you don't have much power. But the fact is you have incredible power in your role for good or for ill. Proverbs 12.4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She's the, the royalty. She's the, his, his finest uh, adornment, if you will. But Proverbs 14.1 says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish wife tears it down with her own hands. Have you ever seen, seen that in action? Being a marriage and family therapist, I've seen that um, occur. I've seen a woman, just by her attitude or whatever, burn her own house down. 
My great-great-great-grandfather, Charles Sheldon Fox, was a Methodist itinerant preacher in New York about the time of the Civil War. And in his diary, he says, say what we may, the wife holds in her hand the happiness of the home. And then you probably remember the, the great Bible teacher, Bill Gothard, and his famous statement where he says the woman has the most power in the marriage relationship. He said the man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and she turns his head wherever she wills. <laughs> so you have incredible power. And then secondly, I want to make sure that our wives in this body know that they are of great value. Amen? Great value. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. And in Genesis 2.18, God creates a suitable helpmate, he calls Eve, for Adam. A suitable helpmate. And if you've done, gone to any weddings that I've conducted, you know that I'll talk about that term, suitable helpmate, and what it means. It means several things. One of them is it's like a reinforcing army coming over the hills to your aid. Isn't that a beautiful image? That a, a, a godly wife is like reinforcements coming over the hill when you need it the most. But it's also, there's also a, um, almost a confrontational feature to that suitable helpmate idea. And that is that someone is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, face-to-face, -face, looking at something with a different perspective. Some, some uh, biblical scholars say uh, she's one who will contend with you, uh, which is an interesting, interesting thing. And I know that uh, there are many godly wives in this body who have saved their husbands from certain spiritual or financial shipwreck by standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and speaking the truth. We want strong women of God who speak the truth. Amen? Not passive women of God who, um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Socrates said, my advice to you is to get married. If you find a good wife, you'll be happy. If you find a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> a good wife is of great, great value. And then third, your power as a wife is exponentially increased if you are a happy person. Um, I was praying about this message and I felt the Lord encourage me to exhort you uh, to just be happy. Be a happy, joyful person. Proverbs 17, 22. I love this verse. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. A merry heart is like medicine to the people around you. Medicine to the home. Medicine to the community. Proverbs 15, 15 says that if you have a merry heart, you will benefit. A merry heart uh, has a continual feast, the scriptures say. 
And then finally in Proverbs 15, 13, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. And how nice it is for a man to come home or to see his wife and to see a cheerful face. My favorite marriage researcher and author, Sean Feldhahn, has actually researched women's frowns and smiles and the effect of both. And so in an article on this subject, she says one of the main secret questions in a man's heart is, am I any good as a husband to you? And in his mind, that question is answered by whether you are happy or not. So as you can imagine, a, a man is powerfully motivated to see you smile and not frown. A frown means that you aren't happy, and so he's failing at one of his most important goals. She goes on to say, we women don't realize it, but in a grocery line, for example, when we say with a frown on our faces, honey, why did you pick this long line instead of that short one over there? We are telling our husbands he is a bit of an idiot. Did you wives realize that? kind of feel that way. But she goes on to say, for a man all is right with the world when he sees you smile. He loves you. He, want to he wants to bless you. He wants to make you feel loved. And seeing you smile shows him he is exceeding. So I want to say to you that your smile is exceedingly attractive and powerful. To your husband. So smile at him every chance you can, especially if he does something right. <laughs> she, she says that actually this smiling at your husband and thanking him for something that he has done is one of what she calls the fantastic five, one of the five ways, one of the five most impactful ways to make him happy. I'll sum up with this quote. Make it clear to him he makes you happy. Thank him for something he has done with a big smile or a hug or words. This greatly pleases 88% of all men. So be a happy person. Yeah, it sounds kind of random, doesn't it? But I think she's trying to say most men uh, really are motivated by a happy face from their wife. And then uh, fourth is fill your life with God. Tom Moan, a pastor here in Tulsa for many years, has a, a statement that I've always remembered. He said, there is nothing more beautiful than a woman filled with God. Isn't that neat? There is nothing more beautiful than a woman filled with God. Ingrid Trobisch, the author of this book, The Joy of Being a Woman, captured the beauty of womanhood, I think, in her book better than I've ever conceived of it when, he said, when she said, the essence of womanhood consists of three things, the desire to love and be loved, the desire to enjoy beauty and to create beauty, and third, to be sheltered 
and to shelter. Let me read that again. To love and be loved, to enjoy beauty and create beauty, and to be sheltered and to shelter others. Well, certainly no matter who we are or what roles we find ourselves, doing our best to be filled with God is a good bet, isn't it? It's a good thing. So now I want to move on to what the New Testament says are the areas of focus if you want to be a biblical wife. Here they are. Just as with the men, we found four major themes with um, becoming or being a biblical wife, we find four major themes as well. There's a cluster of scriptures around um, submission and deference to the husband. There's a strong theme of respect for the husband. There is a theme in, from Proverbs 31 about industriousness and productivity. And then uh, finally there is Interestingly, from 1 Peter 3, a strong exhortation to fearlessness, to fearlessness. We'll take a look at each, each one of these in order. So let's take a look first at this idea of submission or deference to the husband. Now, this is a, this is a, a doctrine that causes a lot of awkwardness and, and discomfort among some. But I want to uh, say to you that if, if an unbeliever were to sort of attack you about this doctrine or attack this doctrine with you, I think it's pretty, a pretty quick, concise answer is um, that men and women have equal value but different roles. It's just an easy way to say we have equal value with God, we just have different roles. Um, but let's take a look at each of these verses that we have here. So Colossians 3.18, we already read, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then from uh, Titus 2.3-5, uh, we read, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. And then Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and verse 32. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then he goes on to explain the man's side, and he says, he sums up by saying, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So rather than try to explain the dynamics of submission and, and uh, how it works, what I would like to do this morning is talk about the spiritual purposes 
that the scriptures seem to lift up as a part of this practice of submission. So by practicing it, a submissive wife, um, according to Colossians 3.18, does something that is fitting, it says. Subject your... Uh, Subject yourself to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? In my mind, that means that if you practice submission as a wife, you are affirming that there is a divine order for the home, that God has laid something out. You are adorning the doctrine of God just because it's the doctrine of God. You are affirming his divine order. And then in Titus 2, verse 5, the, the, the last line says, in order that the word of God may not be dishonored. So let's turn that around. If you are a godly wife, if you are a biblical wife, then you are honoring and credentialing the word of God. Let me, let me remind you that everyone is submissive. Children are submissive. Everyone is submissive to someone, right? Everyone is subject to someone. And so uh, this is how and the purpose of female uh, or wife's submission to husbands. So in Titus 2.5, it indicates that the wife who is subject to her husband is showing faith and peace and love and servant-heartedness toward him. Even though he may be deeply flawed, this honors the word of God and credentials the word of God in the world. So, when you see a godly woman submitting to or placing herself in subject to a deeply flawed man, what effect does that have on you? Um, sometimes a sense of injustice might rise up, but also there might be a sense of uh, she is the real deal. This is, this is mysterious and beautiful to me. Um, that she is submitting her life to him, this deeply flawed man. Um, this is mysterious. She is the real deal. So I think this Titus 2.5, she credentials the word of God. Um, and then the Ephesians passage says that in her submission... She reflects what? She reflects Christ's love, excuse me, the church's love for Christ. If an unbeliever were to enter our church, you know, a half hour ago, what I hope they would have seen is a congregation adoring the Lord. I hope they would have sensed that we were a people who were eager to follow the Lord in obedience. And I would um, hope as well that, um, mm, that they would sense that we have a deep trust in God. So if a woman is submissive to her husband and she is reflecting Christ, uh, excuse me, the church's love for Christ, and she reflects those same things that she adores her husband, she genuinely loves him, that um, she wants to eagerly follow him. 
And, um, and then the last one, that she trusts him. Uh, that may be a powerful, powerful witness to that unbeliever. And honestly, you guys, as I, as I studied all this, it seemed to me that the power behind um, the submission of a wife to her husband really seems to be evangelistic. If you look at, uh, like Titus talks about, that the word of God would not be dishonored. Ephesians talks about that it would be a reflection of Christ and the church and so on. It's about, it's about a message to the world. Finally, I would say that if a wife is submissive to her husband, she really is reflecting the, the personhood and the nature of Christ himself. Remember how in, in Philippians it says that he did not count equality a thing to be clinged to or grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a a servant. And so I think in, in some, this doctrine of submission where wives do their very best to adorn the doctrine of God, you are actually displaying the beauty of Christ uh, in his humbling himself, not demanding equality with the Father, but coming as a missionary, coming as a servant to serve mankind. I hope that is beautiful to you, as it is to me. The last point, however, here is that submission is not servility. Servility means a defeated, cowardly, passive, doormat kind of subjection. Larry Christensen, in his book, The Christian Family, has a chapter on uh, for wives, God's order for wives, and he says this. It is important to distinguish between submissiveness and servility. A wife who sees that her husband's judgment is wrong or unwise should tell him so, with all respect, but freely and honestly. The judgment, wisdom, and opinion of a loving wife is one of man's greatest assets. You remember how we were talking about a helpmate suitable, and she will stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and give him a different perspective. Um, that's what he's saying here. The wife who says quietly, do whatever you think is best, never offering an opinion, even when she sees that her husband is headed, heading the family for trouble, is not being submissive, but foolishly servile. She must tell him her thoughts fully, and make her case as strongly as she can, never laying aside her respect, but never concealing her honest doubts about a particular decision. When she has done this, then she may let the decision rest with her husband, trusting God to give him good judgment. And I will just say as a husband who has watched my wife submit to difficult leadership decisions I've made, um, when I see how totally she has to throw her heart into following me, it makes me want to make the very best decision I can make. It makes me want to be the very best man I can be. 
And so there's some benefit that way as well. So a wife who practices godly submission to her husband glorifies the Lord and shows the world the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, a second theme that's very strong in the scriptures is respect for her husband. Uh, 1 Peter 3.2 and Ephesians 5.33. Let's read those quickly. Uh, 1 Peter 3.2 or 2.3. Let's see. 1 Peter 2.3.2 says he's talking about wives be submissive to your own husbands and then he says, uh, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So again, do you see the connection there between submission and evangelism? Submission and those around you seeing that and turning to the Lord. And then Ephesians 5.33 Ephesians 5.33 says, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. That's interesting to me. See to it that she respect her husband. That's pretty pointed. That's pretty strong. See to it that she respect her husband. I want you to note that these, this is positional, that it's evangelistic, excuse me, um, and it's a picture of the world, of the church's submission to Christ. Last week, Bill was talking about uh, honoring our parents, and that's a positional thing. There's nothing in the scriptures about honor your parents if they're worthy of it. And there's nothing in the scriptures about honor your husband if he's worthy of it. It's a positional uh, uh, type of respect. Shanti Feldhahn, again, cannot emphasize highly enough to women how important it is to their husbands, this issue of respect. Here's a couple of quotes from her. Men would rather feel alone and unloved than inadequate and disrespected. This might blow some of the female minds in here, but it's true. Um, I remember having a big fight with Laura, and she was standing over me saying, but I love you, I love you, I love you. And I said, I don't care if you love me. I want you to respect me. I want to feel respect from you. And, and, and ladies, I meant it. I would rather, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if a show of hands would be appropriate, but, but uh, trust me, it's true. Secondly, she says, just as you need the man in your life to love you unconditionally, even when you are not particularly lovable, your man needs you to demonstrate your respect for him regardless of whether he's meeting your expectations at the moment. And so she says, um, demonstrate through words or actions 
these different ways of respecting him. So here are some ideas she's trying to give women that you can express respect for his judgment, for his abilities, for what he accomplishes. You can be respectful in communication, respectful in public, respectful in your assumptions about his motives. Um, that one about how you speak about him in public is especially powerful. If your, if your wife is, if you as a biblical wife are bragging on your husband in public, your husband feels phenomenal. Um, but if you're tearing him down, uh, he feels very humiliated. And I'm sure it goes the other way, too. She says to wives, your love is not enough. Men need respect. So respect your husband, or respecting your husband is a strong theme in the scriptures that needs to be shown or demonstrated. The next one is industriousness and productivity. And of course, this comes from Proverbs 31. We talk about being a Proverbs 31 woman. So let's start at verse 10 and read to the end. An excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. You know, my wife advised me to buy stock in Walmart about 35 years ago. And, you know, I said, nah, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> she considers a field and buys it. I wish I had paid attention. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So I couldn't boil these verses down to just one or two words. Well, I guess I did two words, you know, the top ones there. But you see these other themes in those passages as well. She's industrious, she's productive, 
she's generous, she's kind, she's confident, and she fears the Lord. Praise God. The last area of focus is fearlessness. And uh, for this passage, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. We'll see the same themes of submission, kindness, respect, and so on. But at the end, in verse 6, we'll see an exhortation to her to not be afraid of anything. So in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And look at these different translations of that last phrase. And do not give way to fear. Let nothing terrify you. Do not fear any intimidation. Uh, even the fear of what your husband might do, one translation says. Isn't it amazing how well the Lord knows us? Uh, I guess he should since he created us, but he, he warns men to not be harsh and to not become embittered. And uh, men have a susceptibility to those things. Likewise, he warns women to not be frightened by any fear. Uh, Martha, Martha, you are troubled by so many things when really only one thing is important. I really appreciate this last verse where God shows his sensitivity to women and to wives and those inner fears that they face. I'd like you men to think for a minute about how terrifying it must be for a young bride to stand at the altar and be hitching her wagon for life to a very flawed man. Thank God she might only have love in her eyes at that moment because it must be a terrifying thing. Because women think about relational things all the time. It's like they look at the rock and then they look at every angle of the rock. And then they look at the, every angle of the rock from every angle. And then they put the rock on a shelf. But then a few hours they take the, the rock down again and begin the whole process over again. Imagine a young wife with these questions. Does he really love me? Will he get tired of me? Will he love me when I'm old and saggy? Or will he cast me off for a newer model? Will he be harsh with me? Will he hit me? Will he, I be enough for him? Will he be faithful to me? What if something really bad happens? Is he strong enough to weather real hardship? What if I get sick? 
See, we men, we don't think about any of this stuff. We're just sitting in front of the TV eating Doritos, you know. But a woman thinks about all these things. And what about me? What if I stop feeling love for him? What if I lose respect for him? What then? Internally, most women are constantly asking questions and evaluating emotional and relational data in their minds. How good of God it is to say, don't be terrified by any fear. Well, you know, after studying all the scriptures, all that the scriptures have to say about being a biblical wife, I would imagine that women, wives, would be very intimidated and say, I'll never be able to measure up to this. And yet, I think there is a, a bit of a secret um, that I want to share with you that will kind of help you open the door in a big way to fulfilling all these uh, goals, all these admonitions from the Lord. And that secret is to absolutely lock down and galvanize and secure in your minds your identity in Christ. That your identity is in Christ and not your husband. Um, I want to tell you a story of a couple that came to me maybe five years ago. And this is a really nice couple. He looks like a biker. Uh, but, but you can tell he's got kind of a marshmallow heart, you know. And she's a beautiful woman. They're probably in their 50s. I'll call, I'll call her Mary. And um, they had an amazing story where he had been an alcohol. They'd been married maybe, I don't know, 15 years. That whole time he had been an alcoholic and unfaithful to her. She divorced him. They were separate for nine years, and then they remarried because he, he, had, he had overcome the alcoholism. He had become sober. He was going to meetings every night of the week. He'd done this for years and years, and she felt like, okay, I can trust him again. I still love him, and uh, so they, they remarried. And now they're in my office because he has confessed to her that he's addicted to pornography. And um, as we talked and worked through this over several sessions, she finally broke down and, and said to me, Jim, why is this so painful? And uh, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not a woman. I'm not you. I don't know. Um, but if you ever find out, come back and tell me because maybe I can help some other women with your story. So a couple years later, I continued to work with the man, but not her. And a couple years later, she came to a session and she said, Jim, I know the answer. And I said, what was the question? You know, I, I'd forgotten that I asked her that. And uh, she said, you, you asked me that if I found out why this was so painful that I should tell you. And she said, I, I know what the answer is. 
And I said, well, what is it? And she said, um, it's because, or the answer is, that my identity needs to be in Christ and not in him. Because if, if it's in Christ, I'm secure. No matter what he does, I'm secure. And I'm reflecting my savior rather than his behavior being my reflection. And uh, I thought that was so, so powerful and uh, so true and so necessary for us to hear. Ingrid Troblish, again, the author of The Joy of Being a Woman, on one of, in her introduction says sort of the same thing. No man will ever be able to satisfy completely the innermost desires of a woman's heart for love, beauty, and shelteredness. I believe it's possible to live a full life, whether single or married, in spite of unfilled desires. But we have to look to the one who says, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. And I would add Colossians 3.3 to that that says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your true life, your real life, is hidden with Christ in God. I know I'm going a bit long, but I'm really close, so bear with me. There was a, I was a minister at the City of Faith, and there was a, a woman came who was very thin, and she looked very sick, and I offered to pray with her, and she told me a story about, about the devil coming to her one night when she was, was very, very sick, and he said, he demanded her life. He said, I have come for your life. Give me your life. And she was just tormented for a period of time by him saying that, demanding her life. I don't know how the devil came. I don't know how he was communicating with her, but, but there was no question in her face that this had happened. But then she remembered Colossians 3.3. And she said to the devil, I don't have my life. If you want my life, you've got to go talk to him. And she rolled over and went to sleep. Her identity is in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And so let me end with this statement. You wives have nothing to fear. You are his handmaidens, his beautiful daughters, meant to love and be loved, to enjoy and create beauty, to shelter and be sheltered. You are the aroma of Christ, meant to fearlessly spread the knowledge of him everywhere you go with a merry heart. Bless your husband, love your husband, respect your husband, submit yourself to him, adore him as you adore the Lord. But above all, secure your identity in Jesus Christ. In this way, you will adorn the doctrine of God in your life and marriage. And let nothing, absolutely nothing, terrify you. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.